my name is Pastor Keith. I'm the executive pastor here at Lake Norman Multiplied Church. Pastor Zach is actually in Nicaragua right now. They are planting a church in Nicaragua, so give it up for Pastor Zach and his team. They are fulfilling God's mission and planting a church there. Hey, we have an exciting Sunday next Sunday. It's family day because we're celebrating five years that this has been a church. All right, five years. How many of you raise your hand if you have been to church for all five of those years? Look at that. All right, give it up for these people who have been here all five years. How many of you are like me and have been a part of the church for five months or less? Five months or less. All right, give it up for the people five months and less, just like me. Well, I'm excited. It's going to be my first family day. I've never been a part of one. I heard that there is a place where we get to dunk Pastor Zach. I'm, I will reserve the right of Pastor Zach to be dunked. Because he is our lead pastor, and so we're going to dunk him, and we're going to have a great time, and so it's going to be so much fun. I can't wait for that. Hey, in groups, all of you should have a card on your seat. Sign up for a group. Get connected. Have relationships with people, because guess what? If you're not connected with people, you're going to be really isolated and really lonely, and that's no fun to be in. And so if you're coming to church, you already are part of this family. Be a part of this family. Get connected. Grow your relationships. Join a group and go through a discipleship process of becoming more like Jesus because of the encouragement of other people. How many know that you need to be encouraged through other people to be part of the community of Christ? You need it. You need it. And if you don't think you need it, you're wrong. You're lying to yourself. You need it. So join a group. Be a part of this church in a more deep way because we want you. We want you part of this family. Amen? Good stuff. So we're going to learn a little bit today. We're going through the book of Revelation. Pastor Zach already introduced the book of Revelation to us. We're going to be going over the second church, the church of Smyrna, the church of the righteous suffering. How many of you like to suffer? No one raised their hands. I'm glad you didn't lie because no one wants to suffer. We're going to be talking about the suffering of the church of Smyrna, and they are actually being rewarded for their suffering. And so the church of Smyrna is about 40 miles north of Ephesus. So Pastor Zach is going to be preaching about the church of Ephesus next week. But the church of Smyrna was designed by the Romans to be prosperous, to be wealthy. They were, it was literally rebuilt and created so that it would be a wealthy city. And in the biblical days, its rival city was Ephesus. Both cities claims that they were the first city in Asia. The church of Smyrna was faithful to Christ but the city of Smyrna was faithful to Rome. Do you see how that could be a clash? And so the Roman citizens in the, church, in the city of Smyrna was dedicated to the Romans. And so the church of Smyrna faced persecution because they were dedicated to Jesus first and government second. Do you see how there could be conflict there? Do you see how we're setting up the application of the Bible to our lives today of conflict and suffering? No one wants to suffer. One of the more frustrating things I find when I read scripture is that oftentimes we run into stories or people of God who are doing everything right, where they are following God's wisdom, they are making all the right choices, and they are following the will of God, and yet they find themselves in a place where they suffer. It's frustrating to me to read people in the Bible who are memorialized for suffering because certainly that means that we are going to face certain suffering in our lives. It's just the reality of the situation. You're going to go through a period of life 
that you are going to suffer. And the good thing is that we read in the, the scripture in the Bible that suffering lasts for a period of time, just like the psalm says, weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Amen, church? There's a period of time which, which we will suffer, but joy comes in the morning. So we're going to turn to Revelations chapter 2, verse 8 through 11, and we're going to read that, and we're going to apply it to our lives and learn a little bit about the his history of the church of Smyrna and how that relates to us today. So chapter 2, verse 8 through 11. To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These are the words of him who was the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid about what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Can I tell you this morning that life is not fair? Life's not fair. Oftentimes, I have a why God moment. Why God did this happen to me? There was a time in my life where I was driving home from church, a place I was supposed to be driving home from church, and a deer hit me, hit my car. I didn't hit the deer. The deer hit my car. And I said, why, God? Why did this happen? Why, why did the timing happen this way? If I was two seconds earlier, the deer would have missed me. If I was two seconds later, I would have seen the deer, and I could have braked and missed the deer. No, the deer, perfectly timed, hit my car. Why, God? Why do I have to suffer by paying a $500 deductible just so my insurance company can replace my bumper? Why, God, does this happen? Why suffering? We have why God moments. There are more serious why God moments. We can be making all the right choices in our lives. My grandmother, she was a pastor's wife her entire life. My grandmother, my dad's mom, she was a pastor's wife her entire life. At the, near the end of their lives, they went to Africa to be missionaries, and then they went to Europe to be missionaries. And so she served God faithfully her entire life. But while she was in Africa, her children started having children. So her grandchildren started be, being born and started having lives. And so she missed all of her grandchildren's births and their celebrations, concerts, their sporting events, everything. And so when they retired, they retired, came back to the stage. She was so excited to be involved in her grandchildren's lives once again. This is a faithful saint. She served God her entire life. She served him in another country, different countries. She came home, and after she came home, three weeks later, they discovered she had cancer, and a couple of days later, she went to the hospital, and her body deteriorated, and she passed away before she experienced what she was so excited to experience her grandchildren in their lives. That's not fair. That is not fair. She didn't put herself in certain danger and die early. She served God with all of her heart, with all of her mind, everything that she had. She served God, and yet Jesus said, you ran the race that I had for you. You're coming home now. Sometimes life is not fair. Sometimes there's certain suffering that happens in life. And the church of Smyrna is feeling that suffering from the Roman citizens from the city of Smyrna because they don't approve of their faith. 
So this letter starts out with a description of Jesus. Every letter starts out with a description of Jesus in Revelations 2 through 3. Every single one of the letters has a description of Jesus in some way, shape, or form. So this is a description of Jesus in verse 8 when it says, These are the words of him who is the first and last, who died and came to life again. He is the first and last. This is especially appropriate that this greeting of first and last comes to the Christians who are faced with persecution because they are reminded by the Lord that they are not to fear death because death is not last. Jesus says, I am last. So the statement gives the church of Smyrna and gives us hope that death is not last. Your lifespan is like a dot on an immeasurable line. That immeasurable line is eternity. And Jesus is saying that he fills that eternity. He says, I am the first. I created the heavens and the earth. I created the beginning and I am the last. You find yourself when you are a new creation in Christ, when you become a Christian, you identify with Jesus, you put yourself on that line and you spend eternity with him because he is the last. Is that hopeful to us today? He says, I am the first, I am the last. You join me when you become a Christian and you're born again on that line for eternity with me. Not only does he say that I am the first and the last, he says, I am who died and came to life again. Translated because it means I became dead, now I live again. So through reminding Smear that he was the first and last, dead and alive again, he's reminding them of which they are on a timeline that he holds eternity in. We can face persecution and suffering today. We might have mourning that lasts the night, but joy comes in the morning. I might face certain suffering in my body, in my life, in my situation, in my circumstances here, but I will spend eternity with Jesus in perfection. Amen, church? There is a blessed hope in knowing there is a timeline to suffering. Suffering doesn't last forever. Our bodies, our physical bodies don't last forever, but our eternity with Jesus lasts forever. Amen? There's something about eternity that just I can't wrap my, my mind around. It's forever, forever and ever. It doesn't stop. It's a forever thing, forever and ever. It, it blows my mind that God is outside of time, that God created time. So a timeline that he created that we are on, we are also in his timeline of an unsubstantiated time that doesn't exist once we're in eternity with him. Does that make you confused? It should because we have finite understanding of an infinite God. God is forever, and we're on a timeline, but when we become Christians and identify with Christ, we now get to spend eternity with our Savior, which means suffering has an ending, but we have a life after death with Jesus forever. Amen, church. Come on. This brings us to verse 9. This is part of the passage where we begin to diagnose the symptoms of a persecuted Christian that are seen through the lens of the church of Smyrna. So when we look at verse 9, it says, I know your afflictions, which means tribulations. I know your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander, the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. John is writing that he knows, that Jesus knows the identification of these things that are going on within the Christian believer's life in the church of Smyrna, but also applies to our lives today. And there are three that are identified. The afflictions, the tribulations, 
there is an element of Christ's suffering that we do share in. Jesus went to the cross. He was beaten. He was beaten. He was beat up and went to the cross for our sins. He wasn't just beaten physically. He was emotionally beaten. He was mentally beaten. He went through a battle and was afflicted for our sin, for our sake. There are times in a Christian's lives, maybe not here in America, maybe it's in the Middle East, in Northern Africa, in, in the Asian countries, where you are not allowed to freely worship Jesus. There are people who are affected by a tribulation today. You can't tell me that there aren't people who are meeting to meet about Jesus, to worship Jesus in countries that are closed off to that religion, to having a relationship with Jesus, that that is not a tribulation. That is for sure a trial and tribulation that they're walking through because meeting means that they could certainly die for their faith. We are unaffected by that. We live, we have the privilege to live in this country where we can meet freely to worship Jesus. We can meet freely, worship Jesus, and live out our faith outside of the church freely. There are countries in which that is not possible, that if they do that, they will certainly die. And yet that is still happening. And Jesus says, I know your afflictions. I love scripture so much because it's so applicable to our lives on a daily basis. We can read this in the affliction part, and it doesn't really apply to us. But I guarantee a church that is meeting in the Middle East knows what a tribulation is because they know if they are caught, they're dead. It's how the Holy Spirit illuminates scripture to apply to us on a day-to-day basis. That's why the, the word of God is alive and well. It breathes into you. That's why we, we read scripture because we need it for our daily bread. We need it for our daily encouragement because when we read it and interpret it, that is when God speaks through scripture to us for that day for our circumstances. Amen, church? The second symptom is poverty. The church not only shares his affliction, but the church shares poverty. Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. There are a few ways to think about the church of Smyrna and poverty. We already established that the church of, or the city of Smyrna was created in a way that it would create wealth. It was a very wealthy city. They were very dedicated to Rome, and because of that, they were created, designed to foster wealth and prosperity. And so if you think about Jesus calling the church of Smyrna in poverty, there's one or two ways you can think about it and two solutions, and both might be true. First is that they were either in poverty by choice or they were in poverty by persecution. Now, what do I mean by that? If they were in poverty because of persecution, it means that they were disqualified for taking place in the local economy because they were Christians. So because they had faith in Christ, because they had a set of rules and convictions that they lived their life for, because they were separated from the other religions and other people, because they called themselves Christ followers, they were disqualified for taking place in the local economy. Does that scare you in any way? Does that mean applicable in our lives in any way? There might be a point someday of which you stand on the word of God and because of what you believe, what convictions you hold true in your heart will disqualify you from buying something from a certain store, will disqualify you from owning a business in a certain place, will disqualify you from partaking in economy in some way because of your convictions, because of what you believe. They will call you names and say, you don't deserve to be in my store because you believe this. That should cause an alarm in our soul because 
Someday we might face persecution in a way that we have to conform to society and the world or we stand firm on our convictions in Jesus Christ. We have to stand firm on the word of God. If it's poverty by choice, this means that the church of Smyrna was in fact actually wealthy and they decided to give away their wealth in community. That's another righteous way to look at their poverty. They were either wealthy because of the local economy and they decided to give away and spread their wealth to others and to bless others, or they were in poverty because they were persecuted. Either way, Jesus calls them rich. Is that a lesson for us today? Don't hold on to material possessions so hard that you miss out of the blessings of God. You can either be in poverty because you stand firm in the word of God and you'll have an eternity with Jesus, or you can be in poverty because you are blessing other people and not holding on to your material possessions because it's not something you earn, it's something he gives. It's something he blesses you with. So why don't you bless other people through his blessings to you? We can be in poverty, but spiritually rich. I want a church that is on fire for God, not because we are wealthy, but because we have the spirit of the living God within our hearts. We want to change Lake Norman and the surrounding area because of the spirit of God that moves in this place. We are rich in faith. The third symptom that Jesus commends the church of Smyrna for going through is that they endured slander by those who say they are Jews but are the synagogue of Satan. This is a reference to the book of Acts. One of the chief, chief sources of opposition to the Christians was the Jewish community. The Jewish community that didn't accept Jesus as Messiah turned into the greatest opposition to the Christians. We see the greatest example who was Saul, who converted and had a conversion experience. We know him as Paul. Before, Saul was a devout Jew persecuting Christians, murdering Christians. Then he had an experience with Jesus, and then because of that experience with Jesus, then he became known as the greatest witness and the greatest of all missionaries that we have a record of because he experienced Jesus. So Paul, who was a Jew at first, persecuted the Christians, and then he had experience with Jesus and knew that he was the Messiah. So this is, this is the synagogue of Satan of which Jesus is talking about, the Jewish people who are persecuting the Christians because they did not accept Jesus as Messiah. He calls it the assembly of the Lord. It's modeled that's modeled after an experience with the Israelites in the wilderness from the book of Numbers. And so he takes, Jesus takes the words, the assembly, they're, they're not the assembly of the Lord. Instead, they're the synagogue of Satan. That's a pretty hefty word. You're the synagogue of Satan. Essentially saying you, you're the worshipers of Satan. He's calling the Jewish people who are persecuting them the worshipers of Satan because they missed the Messiah. They've missed the Savior of the world. They might be trying to be close to God, but they missed God's Son, the Savior of the world. Do you like how we see Jesus telling his church what not to do? Jesus is not saying burn down the synagogue. Jesus is not saying persecute the people who are persecuting you. Do not hurl insults at those who are hurling insults to you. He simply notes that they have been slandered by the people in the community, and he doesn't tell them to slander back. In fact, in the midst of them being slandered, Jesus says, I know. I know. Jesus says, I know based on his own experience. Jesus says, I know because he has gone through the tribulations. He has gone through the slander. He has gone to the 
the poverty. In Corinthians, it said, he became poor so that we might become rich. He knows what it's like to be slandered because every single day, someone takes the Lord's name in vain. Every day on earth, someone takes the Lord's name in vain and he is slandered. He knows that his people are being slandered for the sake of their identification with him. We shouldn't be surprised for when people who try to take a stand with Christ are slandered by the society. We can't be surprised if we are slandered by society. It's a weapon that Satan uses to try to tear the church down, to try to isolate you. Don't be surprised when people attack you to paint you in an ideologically way that makes Christians known as a funny group or a narrow group of minded bigots or maybe we're going to be known as homophobic anti-abortion radicals. Some of us are known as the weird parents who won't let their children watch certain movies or watch certain TV shows or have social media or phones until a certain age. We are slandered because we don't approve of children having the choice to mutilate their bodies and change genders because we have wisdom, because we have righteousness in our lives. So when we stand on these things, when we stand on the word of God, when we stand on righteousness and wisdom, we are slandered. But Jesus says, I know that slander because I went through it myself. You see, I can worship Jesus and go through slander because I know Jesus went through that himself. I know that he was mocked when he went to the cross. I know that he was persecuted and beaten when he went to the cross. I know that he was humiliated when he went to the cross. And I can worship a Jesus who knows my pain, who knows my suffering, I don't know what Buddha went through. I don't know what Muhammad went through. I don't know what the thousands of God of Hinduism went through. But I know my Jesus, he was slandered. He was beaten. And I can worship a God who was slandered, beaten, and died for my sins and rose again. Come on, church. We can serve a God who did that. I can go through any persecution. I can stand on the word of God. I can be mocked for my convictions because I know my Jesus was mocked and he knows my pain And he knows there is an eternity with Jesus after all of that mocking ends. My goodness, these are just signs of wisdom and righteousness. Common sense within our society is eroding. And if we as a church don't stand on the word of God, our wisdom, our common sense will erode with it. We have to be a church of prayer. We have to listen to the spirit. We have to be a church that reads the word of God. If you don't know your word, you are in trouble because someday you will be slandered for that very word that you hold yourself to. Know the word of God, hide it in your heart, and be prepared to be mocked. How are we to respond? There's a directive to action in verse 10, and it's not something we want to hear. It says, do not be afraid about what you are about to suffer. More suffering? Jesus just talked to the church of Smyrna about suffering through slander, through blasphemy, through tribulation, through poverty, all of these things that are happening to the church. And yet Jesus says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer, which means there's more suffering coming. Have you ever been through a spiritual experience thinking that you're about to have a breakthrough? Maybe you're trusting God with your finances. Maybe you're trusting God with your health. Maybe you're trusting God with your job, your career choice, and you think you're about to break through, everything looks good, you're about to go forward, and yet something else happens, and you're like, come on, God. More suffering, more of this. Come on, why, God? 
Your finances are about to be in order and a deer hits your car. Come on, God! The Lord doesn't assure that sufferings will come to an end in our physical lives here on earth. And we know that sufferings can be used for a purpose. So what are practical applications of suffering within our lives? How can we look at suffering, understand that it is okay to go through suffering, understand that sometimes being in the will of God means that you will suffer no matter how unfair it is, no matter how unfair life seems when we are following the will of God, making the correct choices in our lives, praying, asking for wisdom and direction, suffering will still happen. And so when we go through suffering, when we walk through the storm, when we fix our eyes on Jesus and we say, Jesus, I need your help, what are the practical ways we can use suffering to edify our lives? Edify means to make better, to learn from. How do we use suffering to edify our lives? There's practical reasons. One, suffering is a disciplinary purpose served as a consequence. Sometimes we make bad choices and there are consequences to bad choices. I sometimes get frustrated when something bad happens in your life and you blame the devil for it, but it's a direct result of your choices. Like, you make a bad choice, you're speeding down the highway, the cop pulls you over, you get a ticket, Satan, not today! Not today, Satan! Your choice was a speed. You got the ticket. That's a consequence of your actions. We can't blame everything on Satan. Everything that bad happens, you can't blame Satan. You have to take responsibility for your choices. Sometimes there's consequences to your actions and there's a disciplinary purpose to suffering. We see that in scripture where the Corinthians are warned by taking the Lord's Supper in vain and they were told that if you do that, some of them would become weak and sick because of it. Hebrews even tells us that every child that the father loves, he disciplines. How many parents in this room say amen? amen. Sometimes you have to discipline your child because if you don't discipline your child, they're gonna grow up and become a brat. How many want bratty children? None of us want bratty children. Discipline is a form of love. Suffering is a form of discipline and love from our Father. Number two, suffering enables Christians to identify with and encourage other sufferers. Your suffering is a testimony to someone else who needs Jesus that's going through suffering themselves. Maybe your coworker, a neighbor, someone that sees your life, is the, you're the only representation of Jesus that they see. So when they see you going through suffering and yet you still have joy in your heart, joy in your life because you have an eternal security, they will ask, what's different about you? Why can you suffer like I'm suffering yet you have a great attitude, yet you have hope, yet you have joy? Suffering is used as a testimony to reach others who are suffering. And let me tell you, there are people broken in this community that need Jesus, that are suffering in this community. Use your suffering as an opportunity to show people Jesus in your life. Don't let any opportunity of suffering go to waste. Let people know that Jesus is still good in your life. Sometimes suffering is simply educational. In Hebrews 5.8, it says, The Lord learned obedience in the things of which he suffered. Suffering helps us draw closer to the Lord. When things are going great in my life, I have the bad habit of thinking it's because something that I did. When things are smooth, when things are good, I can often praise myself like, that was a good choice, Keith. You did a great, that was 
a smart move. That was wise. You did a great job. And then all of a sudden something happens that drops me to my knees and it redirects my perspective of saying nothing that I did, I earned. It's all because of Jesus. Sometimes suffering is educational of which you say, okay, Jesus, I need you more. Suffering is a way to grow your faith because you learn that it's not all about you, but you have to lean on. You have to rely on your Savior. You have to say, Jesus, I am nothing without you, and suffering proves that. When you suffer, it's just changing the trajectory of your life because you're putting your perspective, you're fixing your eyes on Jesus and saying, I need you. I can't do it alone. I can't do it alone. I don't want to do it alone. I don't want to do, I don't want to go through these tribulations, these trials, these decisions alone. I need you so that I am not alone. For suffering reminds us that this world is not our own. That unmeasurable timeline, that eternity, there is a perspective in knowing that suffering lasts for a period, but eternity is forever with Jesus. Suffering may last for the night. Weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Our eternity comes with Jesus and perfection. No more tears will be shed. No more bad things will happen. In fact, all of those bad things will be undone in the presence of Jesus for eternity. How many can say amen to the presence of eternity with Jesus Christ? That everything bad undoes itself and we spend perfection with Jesus. So suffering reminds us that we rely on Jesus in the moment, but that does not last forever when we have a relationship with Jesus. So I'm going to invite our worship team to come up and prepare themselves. After all of this suffering, after the slander, the blasphemy, the poverty, the tribulations, after all of the suffering, and after more suffering, because Jesus says you're about to suffer even more, after all the suffering that happens and the more suffering, there's a declaration of reward that we find in verse 10. And it reads, I will give you a crown of life. I will give you a crown of life. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. All we know about this church is that they are focused on Christ here. The suffering that they are experienced, they are being rewarded because they are serving the one who conquers. They might feel desperate. They might feel desolate. They might feel discouraged and frustrated. We might find ourselves in a place that we are discouraged and frustrated and sad. Sometimes we doubt Jesus because we don't have the ability to see what's going to happen. We don't have the ability to see what's going behind the scenes that Jesus is working through. We can get really frustrated really quickly, but what does it mean to conquer when he says, the one who conquers? According to the scripture, conquering must not mean succumbing to fear, not being afraid. So persecution, suffering is going to happen in our lives, but we have to have the ability to have the right mindset of not to be afraid of that suffering, but to learn from that suffering, to grow in our faith with that suffering. And what reward is promised to these conquerors? To you and I who are conquering the suffering, you and I who are conquering this fear and anxiety, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, what is the second death? We have to read Revelations as an entire book. We're only in chapter 2, in chapter 3 with the seven letters of the churches. 
The entire book has to be read in fully to understand all the verbiage that's happening. The second death isn't mentioned or isn't started to be explained until the last couple of chapters in Revelations 20 and 21. In Revelations 20, it says, this is the second death, the lake of fire. In Revelations 21, it says, the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The second death is the opposite of eternal life. You know, that, you know that immeasurable timeline of which we are placed on when we, we become Christians and identity with Christ? And that unmeasurable timeline has an eternity? Well, that eternity has one or two ways. Either you spend that eternity in the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus, your Savior, or you spend that eternity separated from Jesus. Now, none of us truly know what it means to be separated from the presence of God. You might be here this morning and maybe you have not given your life to Christ. You still have not been separated by the presence of God because you are here on earth with the ability to breathe. You're here on earth with the ability to nourish yourself and to grow your bodies. These are all blessings from God that has given to us as humanity here on earth. We know the presence of God even if you don't believe in God because you still are not separated from the savior of the world who created all things. But the lake of fire is a complete separation from anything that God has provided. It's a separation from God. It's a desolate place of which you don't know anything because you are in desolation. You are separated. You are completely alone. We've never experienced isolation and aloneness than being separated from the presence of God like that. That is a torture that I would never want on anyone to experience. But that's what the second death is. It's the opposite of eternal life with Jesus. It's an eternal life of separation from God. It's a scary thought, but we don't have to be separated from Jesus ever. We can make a simple choice and continue to make the choice to follow Jesus. We can continue to make the choice that, yes, practically, I do suffer. Yes, practically, I do grow frustrated in my faith. Yes, practically, I have bad days. I have bad times in my life. I have doubtful times. But with that suffering, I also have to have the attitude of, yes, I may suffer, and I may mourn, I may weep for the night, but my joy comes in the morning when my new creation in Christ becomes a reality in the blessed hope in the last days of my life. We get to spend eternity with Jesus. Amen, church? Let's stand to our feet this morning. We have the opportunity to admit that we don't know everything. We have the opportunity to admit that I'm not the savior of the world. I don't have to be the savior of my own world. All of the things that are good in my life are not because of me, but because of God has blessed me with the opportunity. And so if you're in here today, if you're in here today, you've never given your life to Christ. So I'm going to ask that every eye closed, every head bowed, just for a moment. I'm not going to embarrass anyone today, but I want you to think about what eternity looks like for your life. What does eternity look like in your own life? If your life, when your life ends, where are you spending eternity? Are you with Jesus in perfection? Are you completely separated from everything that God has for you? 
If you're here this morning, you've never accepted Jesus in your heart, or you want to rededicate your life to Jesus, I'm simply just going to ask you to raise your hand for a moment. I won't embarrass you. I won't call you out. We're going to pray as a congregation all together. So if you're here this morning and you want to accept Jesus into your, you want to have eternity with Jesus, I'm simply just going to ask you to have you raise your hand just for a moment. So that's you. Raise your hand right now, and I won't embarrass you. Amen. To anyone else this morning that wants Jesus in their lives, that you can spend eternity with Jesus, that you know there are certain suffering that's going to happen in your life, but that suffering lasts for a time that you get to spend eternity with Jesus. Anyone else here this morning? Hallelujah. 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 Amen. I'm going to invite the whole church to repeat this prayer after me. So Lord Jesus, I admit that I am a sinner. And I know you went to the cross for my sins. Thank you for dying for me and coming back to life for me. So I praise you, Jesus, this day. Help me to live wide awake to your purpose and fully alive to your love. In your name that I pray, amen and amen. Church, can we give it up for the few hands that are raised that are spending eternity with Jesus today? Hallelujah. We're going to enter into a moment of worship, but I want to invite you, if you are experiencing any suffering in your life, this is the time to surrender it. If you're suffering in any way, if you're questioning anything, if you have any doubt in your life, I want you to spend a moment by just raising your hands and surrendering to Christ who came for you, who knows you, who understands suffering. If that's you today, just worship Him for a moment and say, Lord, I give it all to you. I give every detail of my life to you. I give every circumstance of my life to you. I give all of the consequences of my sin to you because I believe in you this day. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's raise your hands and worship you for a moment. Hey, thanks for joining us today at Multiply Church. We can't wait to see you again next week, either in person or online, as we continue to love Jesus and change the world.